If you have a Bible, please uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to look at verse 46. Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, and please remain standing if you can in honor of the reading of God's Word. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is God's Word. You guys can have a seat. You guys know that typically when I preach, we just go verse by verse through a, a book. We've been in Matthew for a while now and we take a verse, kind of like Martin Luther said, we would climb up the tree, look at the tree, look at the branches, look at every limb, every twig, and then turn over every leaf and look under it to see what God would have hidden in His Word. And so we, we believe in a very meticulous and, and uh, detailed approach to Scripture, looking at every verse, every sentence, every phrase, every word, analyzing it to see what God has said because we believe that God's Word is contained within the pages of this book. Every word of it. Every word of the Lord proves true, and this is God's Word. And so that's what we would normally do, and um, I don't often jump out of line and, and um, go to a different passage of Scripture, but today I want to. I want to jump out of place. Um, I could have went anywhere in, these, in, in a few of the Gospels, um, but I decided just to stay in Matthew and use this question that Jesus asked. And the reason is this. There are those of our flock who have gone through traumatic events in recent days. And if not them, then somebody. All of us at some point will go through something traumatic, something heart-wrenching. All of us. And the loss of a child, I believe, is probably the worst, most horrific experience that a, a person can experience in this life. I, I can't imagine anything worse than the loss of a child. But I'm thankful that we serve a God who knows exactly what it feels like to lose a child. He knows. See, as a pastor, I can't go to the hospital and sit with Kyle and Terry and say, I know what it feels like. I can't say it. But God does. And I believe that this verse, if we understand what is happening here, I believe that this verse has gives great comfort and support and aid to the Christian. If you're not a Christian... There's no verse that gives any hope whatsoever. Without Christ, there is no hope. If we don't have a relationship with Jesus, if, if the Holy Spirit hasn't come inside of our hearts and, and taken over, and He is now ruling and reigning in our hearts, 
that being the definition of Christian, then we have no hope. In a hundred years from now, as Paul Washer says, in a hundred years from now, every single one of us will be in one of two places. If you're a Christian, you have hope. You're looking forward to heaven. If you're not a Christian, you will be a gruesome and grotesque monster suffering under the wrath of Almighty God forever and ever and ever. And when a billion years has passed, it will have just begun. It won't stop. But for the Christian... We have hope. We have somewhere that we're, we're looking forward to. Like Abraham, we're looking for a city that, that is not on this earth. A heavenly city. And so for the Christian, and I would say that the majority of this message is for believers. And I would hope that as I explain this passage and explain the hope that we have as believers, that if there's a non-Christian who would be here or who would maybe hear this, they would see this hope and say, I need that hope. I want that for me. And they would cry out to God for mercy. But I think this passage gives great hope to the Christian. And so I just want to look at this, this great question. So many places in the Bible, the questions teach more than, than the, 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 the commands or the, the assertions. And I think we can learn a lot from this question. And I've broken it up into five headings. And we're just going to analyze what's happening here. So the first heading that we're going to look at, this one verse, is the context of the question. As we know, or we probably know, if you've spent much time in Scripture, we are with Jesus as He hangs on the cross at this point. We are in the midst of the crucifixion. And the context is the crucifixion and the preceding sufferings that led to the crucifixion. There was the Passover meal that Jesus shared with His disciples. He said, I have earnestly desired, I have longed to share this meal with you. And that was established in the Old Testament. God established the, the festival of unleavened bread and the, the festival, the, the, the Passover meal in, as a way to remember the Passover in Egypt when God Himself, in the form of the death angel, went through Egypt and killed the firstborn of every one of the houses of Egypt. From the Pharaoh down to the servant girl who was grinding at the meal, God killed every firstborn. And, but He spared those of His people who sacrificed the Passover lamb. And they rubbed the blood on the doorpost. And so when God would come through, notice He did go through the land of Goshen where His people were. Because His people were not free of sin. Judgment comes on all people. But they had sacrificed the lambs according to the members of their households. And the blood was there and He would pass them by. And He established Passover to celebrate that. And they would always look back and they would honor what God had done through the blood of that lamb who was slain to take the place of His people. And in this meal, when Jesus celebrated with His disciples, He instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake of tonight. And in the Lord's Supper, we look back, and we do remember the Exodus, and we learn the story, but we look back at the point where Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain for the sins of His people. So He has partaken of the Passover meal. You'll remember Judas left. Jesus said, whatever you do, do quickly. Jesus, Judas left. He had already been in His mind trying to conjure up a way to 
betray Jesus, so he leaves. Jesus takes the other 11 disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're praying. And you'll remember, he tells them to pray, and they fall asleep, and he has to come back and wake them up, and he goes to pray, and they fall asleep, and he has to come back. And he asks them, could you not tarry with me one hour? They didn't know what was about to happen, but he for sure knew. And so he's prayed. He has suffered in his soul with anguish, like I said last week, to the point of the bursting of the capillaries in his brow. He's sweating blood because he knows what he is about to suffer. He understands. And so Judas arrives with a squadron of men with weapons and torches to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says in so many words, I've been preaching all over the place and you come to arrest me like I'm a criminal. One of my favorite parts of Scripture is when they ask for Jesus and He says, I am He. And the men fall back when He declares the name of Yahweh, I am. But they come to arrest Jesus. He's arrested. He's tried with a mock trial. It was not according to their laws. They didn't obey the rules. He's tried. He's delivered over to be crucified. He's beaten. He's spit upon. He's cursed. He's mocked. His beard is pulled out. A crown of thorns is crammed down onto his head. He carries his own cross as far as he can up to Golgotha. They get Simon of Cyrene to take it the rest of the way because Jesus couldn't do it. And then he's nailed to the cross. The cross is lifted up. And the crowds continue to mock and to jeer and to deride and to wag their heads at Him. And then we see in verse 45 here, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That is 12 o'clock noon, the middle of the day, to 3 o'clock, it was dark. The sky went black. The sun failed to shine. That's what is happening here. That's the context of this question. He's hanging on the cross and it's dark. The next point that I want to look at is the asker of the question or the questioner. Who, who is speaking here? Well, the answer, of course, is this is Jesus Himself speaking. Matthew here records the words of our Savior. This is the incarnate Word of God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God, not some God, not soon to be God. He was God. And then in verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh. He was incarnate. The Word of God became a man. That's who we're looking at. Jesus, the Word of God. John also tells us, that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming to baptism, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, remember, John the Baptist is referring back to the Old Testament again. The ceremonial system. On the Day of Atonement, there would be two lambs used in uh, the ceremonial sacrifices for the sins of the people. One day a year, the high priest would perform this duty. There would be the Passover lamb who would be um, uh, killed. They would slit its throat, spread its blood on the altar, 
and it would die. The picture there was that of propitiation, the wrath and the judgment of God being deflected from the people and onto the lamb. The lamb died in the place of the people. But then the second lamb, where we get our word scapegoat, the second lamb was a lamb who the priest would put his head or his hand on the head of the lamb and he would ceremonially pronounce the sins of the people onto this lamb where and another man would be waiting to strike that lamb and send it out into the wilderness away from the people out of the camp out from the presence of God and the people and this is a picture of what we call expiation that is carrying our sins away from us John the Baptist says this is the Lamb of God. The sacrifice that God sent to not only propitiate His wrath, but also expiate the sins of the people. He fulfilled both. This is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And He's also Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is important. Again in John 1.14, the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father. That is, He proceeds from the Father. He wasn't created. He is eternal, but He proceeds forth from the Father. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He shines forth as the glory of God in human form. So, like a light bulb puts out light, God Himself shines forth glory. That glory became a man. And that man is Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, the Lamb of God, and the only begotten Son of God is hanging on the cross, and it's dark. God the Son. Second person of the Trinity. Very God of very God fully human, fully divine, arrested and hanging on a cross. To the world, a criminal, an insurrectionist, just another suffering criminal who deserved what he got. But to God the Father, this was His Son. His very own Son, arrested, hanging on the cross, and all of a sudden, it goes dark. The sun fails to shine. Picture this scene. That's the asker. That's who's speaking. The third point that I want to look at is the manner in which this question is asked. The manner in which this question is asked. Notice it says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He cried out with a loud voice. Now if you know much about Jesus, or if you've paid attention to what we've studied, especially in chapter 11, you know that this is very uncommon for Jesus. In Matthew, was Matthew chapter 12, it says, Matthew, quoting from Isaiah, he says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear His voice in the street. See, this prophecy of the servant of God prophesied that it would be of His nature to be quiet and to be a gentle man. He wasn't loud and, and boisterous. He wasn't rambunctious. He didn't cause a scene where he went. People didn't um, hear his voice. Oftentimes when the crowds would follow him, it was because 
They had heard of his miracles. They had heard of the wisdom of his teaching, but it wasn't because he was loud and making a scene and and drew attention. In Isaiah 53, probably the most popular of the songs of the suffering servant, we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That was a prophecy that had just been fulfilled that said, even leading up to the cross, in his sufferings as they are preparing him to die, he will not be loud. He's not going to shout out for freedom. He's not going to raise his voice and say, does anybody not see what's happening? Does anybody not see this trial doesn't count? That justice is not being served? That none of this makes sense? He didn't do that. When they asked him and interrogated him, he barely said anything. This was very uncommon for Jesus to to cry aloud. So the question that we have to ask is, why the uncommon manner of speech? Why is he crying with a loud voice? Well, it's not because he was angry. A lot of times when... We are angry, we raise our voice. When we lift our voices, we feel like we are bigger than we are. We feel like we are intimidating. And we, we want to let everyone around us or, or whoever we're angry at, we want to let them know, I'm angry. And so we raise our voice. But I don't believe Jesus is angry. Just previous to this, He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He wasn't out of control here. He's in complete control. He knows exactly what's happening. He knew that this would happen before the foundations of the world. He's not mad. He even speaking of the ones who had beaten him and crucified him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand that I'm the Son of God. So he's not mad. And it's not because he's trying to be heard. And a lot of times we raise our voice when somebody's far away. We want to project our voice so that the sound waves get to them because they're farther away. Well, he's speaking to God. I don't think Jesus is under the impression that because God is up in heaven and He's down on earth that He has to be loud so that His sound waves will reach heaven. We know that God is is transcendent. Yes, He is in the heavens, but He's also everywhere. When I ask Case, where is God? He tells me God is everywhere. So Jesus wasn't shouting out just hoping that God would hear him. He's not angry. He's not trying to be heard. The question, why is he asking in this manner? Well, the answer, I believe, is that he was in anguish. He cried with a loud voice because he was in anguish. He was in agony. First, he was in physical anguish. He had just been beaten and whipped, and crucified, beard pulled out, slapped, punched, mocked. He's hanging on a cross. He's got a nail in each one of his hands, or his wrists, it's somewhere. He's got nails, or a nail through his feet, holding his feet down. He's got a crown of thorn that they have mashed down onto his scalp, piercing his scalp. He's in physical anguish. And most of you know that the, the, the death of the cross was not normally a death of, of the nails. It was a death of asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe. 
So he's got asphyxiation beginning to set in. He's struggling to breathe. He's struggling to hold himself up at the weight of the, the torn flesh on his hands and his feet. He is in physical anguish. But even worse than that, he was in spiritual anguish. He was and had always been a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but at this point where Jesus hangs on the cross, his sorrows and his grief culminate. This is where it all came to a point. Again in Isaiah 53 verse 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. His soul was in anguish. His soul ached. It hurt deep down within him. Like when we think of what has gone on with, with the family in our church. Kyle and Terry, our soul hurts for them. He knew that anguish of his soul far worse than any physical pain. See, when we think about the cross, usually what we think about is, man, I bet that hurt. I would not want to be whipped. I would not want to have a nail through my hands or a, a crown of thorns on my head or a spear piercing my side. But far worse than any physical pain that Jesus felt was the spiritual anguish of his soul. And to understand the spiritual anguish, we have to move to the next heading, number four, and look at the question itself. The question itself. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the question, and that's where we see the anguish that Jesus is in. First, look at the address. He says, my God, my God. Now remember who's speaking here. We've already looked at this. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God. The Word of God in human flesh, eternally, from the bosom of the Father. The Lamb of God sent by the Father to redeem His people. And the Son of God, proceeding forth from the Father, co-equal with the Father, but he doesn't say, Father, Father. Paul will tell us later that because we are Christians, our relationship with God is such that we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's, that's Papa or Daddy. That's even closer than just Father to us. Jesus doesn't say, Abba, Father, or Father. He says, my God, my God. And what we see there is that something has happened in this relationship that, is not, that doesn't leave the relationship as it had been before. Remember at the baptism of Jesus, He comes up out of the water, the heavens open, and, he's, and, and the voice from heaven that we know is God the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. In Matthew chapter 11, we read... Jesus making this statement, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. What we saw in that verse was there is an intimacy between a Father and a Son on earth, but there's also this intimacy, this eternal intimacy between God the Father and God the Son that nobody else can even fathom. We cannot imagine this closeness. 
We are welcomed into this relationship, but we will never know the eternal intimacy between the Father and the Son. Just previous to this, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus addressed God as Father six times in that prayer. And like I mentioned earlier, just previous to this on the cross, He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But something happened when the sky went dark. When the sun stopped shining that day at 3 o'clock or at 12 o'clock, something happened. The relationship wasn't as it had been. There was a rupture in the relationship. He doesn't call Him Father. He calls Him God. And we go to look at the rest of the question that explains this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the question. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoting from Psalm 22. Jesus says this because He feels He has been forsaken. Why else would He say it if, if that's not what's happening here? The word forsaken means to be left behind to be deserted, to be abandoned, to be cast aside, to be left alone. So as Jesus hung on the cross that day, the, the Father, His very own Father, in whose bosom He had existed for eternity, from whom He had always proceeded, the One whom He had communed with in a way that no one will ever experience, God the Father, God His Father had forsaken him. He had deserted him, abandoned him. He left him there alone to, to carry out the conclusion of his work. Now, when we begin to talk about this, we have to be careful and remember that Jesus is both God and man. When God forsook or had forsaken Jesus, he did not forsake the divine nature of Jesus because Jesus and, and God, they're one. God can't forsake Himself. That would have meant that the Trinity for at least a time would have ceased to have existed properly. So He didn't abandon the divine nature. He abandoned His human nature. Jesus' earthly flesh and blood body and the nature that came with it. That which Jesus took onto Himself when He was incarnate. As a man, that was abandoned. The human nature of Jesus. His earthly nature was cast aside. Left alone. Leaving Him and the whole world in darkness. He was, in other words, cut off from the land of the living. He was smacked and sent off into a desolate wilderness alone. Outside the camp. Outside of the presence of God. So, here we have the Son of God. We read as He cries out in spiritual anguish at the realization that His own Father, whom He had trusted in, whom He had followed for His entire earthly ministry, He said, I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only do what I see the Father doing. He was faithful at every point, every day of His earthly ministry. And then... 
He cries out in anguish because that father has left him completely and totally alone. His disciples had already abandoned him when he was arrested. The crowds esteemed him stricken. He was already despised and rejected among men. And now his own father, in essence, has walked away. He hangs on that cross with people all around and he is completely and totally alone. So that's the question. And number five, we look at the answer to the question. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer Silence. God doesn't give an answer. We don't have an answer here. The narration continues. He has been forsaken. But in redemptive history, as we study Scripture and we understand what Jesus came to do and who God is and who we are, we realize exactly what happened in this moment and we can come up with an answer to the question that Jesus asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can look back and know what happened here. Three verses. Habakkuk 1.13, speaking of God, says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is holy and He cannot with pleasure or goodwill behold sin and evil. He can't. If He looks at evil and sin, He hates it with a holy and righteous anger. Isaiah 53, 6, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And 1 Peter 2, 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. The reason that God the Father had forsaken His only begotten Son that day on that cross was because Jesus, in His humanity, had taken onto Himself every sin, every infraction of all of His people for all eternity in His body. He had been made to be sin. He hung as a substitute for His people. He hung as the Lamb of God who was in that moment taking away the sins of the world. He hung as our curse on the cross. The Bible says, for cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The Father could not stand to behold His Son with whom He had only ever been pleased. He had only ever been delighted in Him, but He could not stand to behold Him in that moment because He took into Himself, in His body, all of our wretchedness all of our gruesomeness, all of our graphic sins, all of the sins that everybody knows about us and all the sins that nobody knows about us, all the sins that we would be terrified if people knew about us, the thoughts that we think, the things that we say under our breath, He took all of that onto Himself and the Father simply would not behold His Son in that. So the answer again to the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can be found in one verse. And this is the very crux of the Christian faith. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become 
the righteousness of God. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to take on sin. He imputed our sin to Him. Had He sinned? No. Was He a sinner? No. It was imputed to His account so that we might become, we might be imputed, His righteousness would be credited to us. This is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. The answer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is, for our sake. So that we might become the righteousness of God. We are imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now how does this work for our sake? Well, we should know, but it never hurts to hear this. We have no righteousness of our own. None of us. We are only sinful. In every part of our being, our flesh, our minds, our, our souls, every part of us is unrighteous and sinful and totally depraved. We are lost and without hope. And in that condition, we stand only to be judged and condemned by God as sinners deserving eternal hell unless we have an alien righteousness imputed to our account. Unless God can take a righteousness from somebody else and, and just say it's ours, we have no righteousness. And that's what He does when we trust in Jesus by faith. He says, Paul, righteous. Now, am I righteous? No. But He declares me righteous. It is put on my account. And so in the court of God, because I am in Christ, I am beheld and declared as righteous. By faith, we are imputed the righteousness of Jesus. We are not imparted righteousness, as in we do good deeds and we actually become righteous. The Roman Catholic Church teaches we are simply imputed the righteousness of Christ. Any merit of our own is, is, is rubbish. The only merit we have is Jesus and His righteousness in our place. We are imputed this righteousness and we then become children of God. If you are a Christian today, you are a child of God the Almighty. And He looks at you like He looks at His very own Son. Because we have been adopted into His family. So then, what does the Bible have to say about those of us who are His children? Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1.5 No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. 2 Corinthians 4.9 Speaking of Christians, we are persecuted, but not forsaken. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you because we are in Christ and because we have been adopted into God's family we have been made to be God's own children he has promised he will never leave us he will never forsake us so the message today for the Christian is 
The Lord Jesus Christ, eternal Word of God, Lamb of God, Son of God, took on flesh, became a human being, hung on a cross, and was forsaken by His Father so that we will never be forsaken. God's only Son was forsaken so that His adopted sons and daughters would never be forsaken. In the darkest hours of our lives, God will never forsake us. Jesus has already been forsaken in our place. When it feels like there's no one there, praise God, we don't live by our feelings. We live by what the Word says, and it says He can't forsake us. He won't. Because Jesus has already been forsaken for us. So when you are walking to the valley of the shadow of death, His rod and His staff, they will comfort you, they will guide you, they will correct you. Because He can't leave you. He can't forsake you. Because He's already forsaken His Son in your place. So when when a job falls through or the money's not there and the bills are due and you have no idea what you're going to do, when someone who's close to you, who you trusted and and just had put so much faith in, when they do you wrong or they, they leave you alone, when wayward children grow up and walk away from the faith and you have no idea What's happening because you feel like you've done everything the Word told you to do when you've cried out time and time again over and over for God to relieve you and to help you to battle and put to death indwelling sin and you fall again and you think, God, where are you? Or when you're in the waiting room of the hospital and there's no one there speak to when a loved one dies or when you're in the funeral parlor picking out caskets. He is there because He cannot forsake us in the darkest hours that we can even fathom as human beings when we're numb, when we're weak, when we have no idea how we're going to go on, when we don't know how to pick ourselves up off the floor. He's there. He cannot leave you. He cannot Forsake you. If God stepped away from any one of His children for even one millisecond, that would mean that He had not dealt with sin fully in Christ. That would mean He he would not be a just judge. He would cease to be God. The universe would cease to exist when God forsakes one of His children for one second. He cannot leave us or forsake us because He has already forsaken His Son in our place. To imagine yourself forsaken by God in those moments, and we're all human, we all get there when we wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? And and we we know Scripture, and it, it might even make us mad when somebody says, well, for all things work together for good for those who love God. And we know that. We know it all works together for good, but it hasn't all happened yet. So we don't know. We, we think, what good could possibly come from this? God, what good's coming from this? And we hear nothing. We know that He has not left us and He has not forsaken us because He has already forsaken us. His Son, and if we imagine ourselves forsaken, we are discrediting the work of Jesus Christ 
as our substitute. If He has not been forsaken in our place, then He has not taken our sin from us. If He has not been forsaken in our place, He hasn't died in our place. If He has not been forsaken in our place, our whole salvation is a sham. So the question Jesus asked on the cross was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer screaming out of the pages of Scripture and redemptive history is, I have forsaken you, my son, so that I do not have to forsake those whom I have given you. I don't have to leave them. If you will just take this, I will never leave any one of your people. And as we begin to understand this, it goes one step further. If God has not forsaken us, we cannot forsake one another. When our family is hurting, it should be like bootstraps getting tighter. We should draw in closer. Circle the wagons, whatever you want to call it. Our family is hurting. We're going to see in the weeks to come, when Jesus' physical family approached Him, He said, who are my mother, my brother, and my sisters? Those who do the will of my Father, these are my brothers. See, this family, this flock, is closer than our physical families. When we die, when I die, I will not be Christy's husband anymore. I will not be Case's dad anymore. When we get to heaven, I'll be her brother. She will be my sister. Case will be my brother if he's saved someday. The, the earthly family is just for now. When we get to heaven, it won't be that way. We'll be brothers and sisters. And so, this is should be a tighter-knit family than our own flesh and blood. And so when we see our loved ones going through pain, we should corral around them as they are hurting. Do not forsake them. Don't just carry on like everything is fine and thank God it didn't happen to me. Hurt with them. Ache with them. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If it doesn't hurt you that a family member is hurting, there's something wrong with your heart. Jesus was forsaken by His Father so that the Father could never forsake us so that we could then never forsake our brothers and our sisters. Even if it's just prayer, a kind word, something quick. Sometimes a physical presence or just acknowledging that you know something is wrong means more to people than, than we understand. But in those times, we know God has not forsaken us. He has never left us. He will never leave us. When we get to heaven, we may look back and be able to understand. The Bible says, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. I don't know. We may not even care what happened here. We will know the gospel. We'll sing the gospel song for eternity I don't know. But we will worship God for this situation. For the darkest situations in our life. We will worship Him for what He done. We will praise His name because He brought us through that. Let's pray.